0: Hi, everyone. I'm Gary Bolabio, Vice President of Technology Partnerships here at Cladinary, and this is MX Matters, where we discuss all things media experience and trends that shape the visual economy. Today, I am happy to be here with Johan Bostrom, co-founder and CPO at InRiver to learn more about InRiver and its business. Johan, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here.
1: Thank you so much, Gary. Thank you for having me.
0: So first thing, it would be great if you can just give a little bit of a background on InRiver, who you are, your mission, and how you help customers.
1: Yeah, for sure. We're a SaaS-based software company. We are within the product information management space or product experience management space, meaning that we basically take a bare-bones skew from a back-office system like an ERP or a PLM or a supplier, maybe 10 attributes as of half of them, not interesting to a consumer or a buyer at all. And we put them through a process where we enrich all of the properties on the product. So we add, of course, digital assets of all kinds. And we have text being written, text being localized. We add bundles and kits. We can put it into geo information and basically dress it up so that a consumer or a buyer have the knowledge and the information available so they can make a purchasing decision. So we basically do that as fast as possible and as complete as possible. And then we publish it to Amazon, to e-commerce sites. We do printed catalogs. We can do point of sale solutions. We can do integrations with configurators, all depending on the industry that the customer is in.
0: Can you talk a little bit about the motivation for founding the company and what was the problem that you saw? in the market that you thought drove the need for a company like InRiver to be in the market?
1: Like a lot of things, it's a coincidence. It's like, you know, you have a banana and you trip on it and you slide and it's what you make out of it that is make or break success. But we worked in the telco sector quite a lot. Me and some of my colleagues, this was under the telco explosion in the Nordics with Nokia and Ericsson, all of those going haywire. And they, of course, released products like There Was Snow Tomorrow, uh, and the telco operators, like the Verizon's of the world, they had a lot of products coming, hardware products as, and software products. Uh, and they were expanding rapidly across the globe. we dealt with their web presence and we built tens or hundreds of sites. And we realized that most of these sites were just different brands of the same information. Same coverage map for Greece for all of the brands that were sub-brands. So we started thinking, hey, we should probably move the maintenance of this upstream so we can use one single source of truth for all these satellite systems. And what we actually did was that we built something called the Oracle, and the Oracle was a PIM. We didn't call it a PIM back then. Gartner had invented the acronym, but today, looking back and connect the dots, it was a PIM that we built. And eventually, we built that for quite a few customers, bespoke systems. But we saw the need in mid-sized manufacturing especially. So we wanted to package it up as a product and go to market through a partner network. So we did. And that sort of became in river.
0: So it was a partner-first approach. Didn't realize that.
1: Always. Uh, we've always had a partner-first approach. Yeah. I mean, we had a few years when we did our own implementations and we had some partners. In mm-hmm. 2007, we divested all our consultings. The right thing to do at the wrong point in time is 2008 wasn't a fun year for anyone, I think. But given what we have done after that, it's been really good to have a strong foundation in a partner network. Gives us and our customers way more reach, way more knowledge about different systems and industries that's very beneficial to the whole ecosystem. So we truly appreciate our partners a lot because we are in a very good symbiosis with them.
0: Well, as a guy in the partner team at Cloudinary, I definitely appreciate hearing that for sure. So. Just from a product standpoint, I mean, it's clear to me what the problem is that there's a lot of information, a lot of assets that go along with any product that you're trying to sell in the market. There's all sorts of written documentation, there's images, there's videos, there's demos, there's all sorts of stuff. So clearly being able to organize that is pretty critical for an e commerce provider. Are there any real world use cases or examples that you can provide to help the listeners understand or conceptualize the importance? of a a bit more?
1: The problems are a little bit different depending on industry. If it's, let's say, an industrial manufacturer, they typically sell equipment. Equipment is a solution that is configured to a certain customer. Let's say take an industrial welding robot as an example. It gets designed and configured to maybe just weld one piece on a Volvo. That's what it does. Can't do anything else, but it's perfectly aligned with the Volvo. That will have a life cycle that's probably 10, 15, 20 years. And during the life cycle, it will need parts, it will need accessories, it will need consumables, it will need service. So for them, uh, being able to sort of manage all this information, all the specification data, service manuals, spare parts lists, and have that uh, available in maybe Salesforce service cloud so that they can service their customers, have it in Salesforce revenue cloud so they can configure the solution. Have it available in Salesforce Commerce Cloud so they can sell the parts so the customers can order them is very important. And we're talking about often millions of SKUs, hundreds of thousands of products, maybe with thousands of attributes, with hundreds of documents and videos and images. And of course, add to that localization. If you are a large company, you're likely global. So you need it in Japanese, in Swedish, in German, in English, in Spanish, and so forth. And the localization in itself is very tough when you have millions of records, hundreds or thousands of attributes. Mm -hmm. And then you have the fashion companies that we work with. For them, speed is everything. They maybe have a two-week life cycle. If that welding robot is alive and kicking for 20 years, the T-shirt maybe lived for like two weeks. So for them, it's very important that they can keep up the production uh, very quickly because Without the images, without the attributes, without the material composition, uh, no one will buy a t-shirt even online. And the more complex the products are, the more expensive they are, the more important the product information gets, of course. So if you are within luxury goods, or if you sell cars, or if you sell refrigerators, that's a high engagement decision for the customer. They will do a lot of research before they buy a new soap or a new TV. Uh, that's when you really need to shine. You need to stand out. You need to see to that you are the one that gets visibility on third-party sites too, like Amazon and Best Buy and others.
0: Let's fast forward a little bit and let's talk about you know where things are today. So I noticed on your website, there's a lot of blogs and a lot of content related to composable concepts and a mock alliance as well on your website. So can you talk a little bit about what River sees in terms of the opportunity with composable architectures, you know, Mach, maybe a little bit why InRiver might be excited about that space and how does the approach make sense even for brands as well to get access to those types of capabilities, maybe even as it relates to DAMS as well as PIMS?
1: Absolutely. I think it relates to all systems, actually, regardless of domain. For us, this is a no-brainer approach. We've always had an API First approach that's been in our DNA since day one. Our partners have always been able to build solutions on top of a river. So we've always been kind of that platform also. And today, as we are a multi tenant platform that are microservices based, we are already mock. <laughs> we've been mock for a long time. It's just the terminology is sort of new, but it's yeah. not new for us. One of the things that we've seen, of course, is that that there's more data that's going to go to more endpoints. And these endpoints, when we started off 15 years ago, we had a batch job running and it published a, a rendition of a catalog and all its assets, all the images, videos, and so forth, to a receiving system. Today, we're going off of that push model and into the pull model. So I'm saying we're leaving the push economy and going into the pull economy. And that means that the PIM, which is also integrated to, for us, on average seven systems must be mock compatible. It must have the ability to deliver near real-time data but that's when where you guys come in because real-time data is one piece of it delivering JSON to some e-commerce engine that's not hard because it's not that much data it's pretty slim when it comes to the data volume but assets are big and big files are the one that are the stuff that drags performance down, and that's where you need a CDN capability, the content delivery network to speed things up. You also need the fantastic transformation capabilities that that Cloudinary has, because you need to be able to dynamically transform these assets. And that is why we partnered up with you guys and built it into our product. as one of the core functionalities.
0: Your story is also very similar to Cloudinary's story with respect to we were born as an API. We were always there. And, you know, Mach got built around us and we we're like, hey, we just fit right into this thing. This is great. And I didn't realize on average, you connect to seven different systems. I and mean, that's an interesting statistic. We need to keep track of that. And we need to
1: understand what the integration points are, because if there's frequent integrations with certain systems, let's say SAP, it's not something that should be done in every implementation for every customer. It should be dealt with by us. We should support that out of the box. Whilst if it's an integration to a home-brewed system, well, there's only one customer probably in the world that, that will use it, and then it becomes a bespoke integration. But again, that needs to be simple. It needs to be fast so that we get deliver time to value as well. And so the need we have of delivering more integrations as well as our partners delivering integrations to our customers, uh, it's sort of the same need. And mock is a very important piece of us being able to deal with that complexity that this integration Mm -hmm. creates because this ecosystem is growing. It's not like the integration points are becoming fewer, just growing in numbers Mm -hmm. and complexity every day. Mm -hmm. Integration for us is really key and we're focused, laser focused on building better integration.
0: That's interesting. I mean, are you seeing that you're connecting to more systems now than you were, you know, when the company was first started and you see that growing? Oh yeah. (laughs) yeah, for
1: sure. Look, 15 years ago, we connected to an ERP system and we got some SKUs from the ERP. We dressed them up and we published to an e-commerce solution and maybe to a printed catalog, and that was basically it. Today, we get information from ERPs, PLMs, OMS solutions, suppliers. There's so many sources. And when we talk about the publishing, it's not only e-commerce, print anymore. It is point of sale solutions, product configurators sales and service support systems, and of course, syndication to Amazon, Walmart, and Best Buy, and all the other retailers and marketplaces, and large distributors and MRO procurement providers, and all of those. So it's a channel explosion uh, right now, and it's going to continue to explode. And thus, this integration piece and being able to deliver near real-time data is crucial.
0: I'm just thinking about how much more that is to manage and everything for all of our customers, right? Across all these systems. It's incredible. Uh
1: Yeah. You look at it like a matrix. I mean, you have a product, that product might come in 10 variations. That variation comes in 10 different sizes per variation. And then you have your languages and all the other localization that you need to do times every channel that you have. And all the channels will be different. Some will want five images, some want three. Some require a video, some want a certain set of attributes, some want another set of attributes. So year over year. Our data model, the number of attributes per product and per SKU grows 9%. Wow. And that's, of course, gets compounded. So it is a pretty rapid growth. And that also goes for digital assets, of course.
0: Amazing. So let's talk about the digital assets a little bit more. The way I like to describe things is that when we're working with our customers, we're always trying to drive that in-store experience, but online. And today there's product galleries. They incorporate a lot of static images. A lot of different angles, of course, but more and more companies are incorporating more richer assets, I guess I could say. So 3D, 360 spinners, demo videos, they're trying to provide that much more. even be able to zoom in on a high resolution image as well. So you can see the threading for some items. I'm just curious to get your take on brands incorporating and leveraging those types of assets. And also, like, how is InRiver helping to support that and brands taking advantage of those types of of assets?
1: Very good question, because that is one of the reasons that we liked the partnership with you. Again, the number of assets are growing, but the complexity of the assets is growing also, because 3D AR, it's rarely a file. It's more of a database in its own right. It's mesh models that are very complex to deal with. The good thing about that modern kind of approach with 3D and AR is that you also sort of get virtual photography as a part of that. So. When you have an engineer or designer working in a computer-aided design program, you can quickly turn that into images, 360 spins, and a lot of other assets. It is also, when you look at configurating stuff, if you configure, let's say, a sectional sofa, you will need a lot of images being dynamically put together when you change the legs on the sofa, when you change the sections, when you change the fabric, when you change the swatch on the fabric. When you change the legs from metal to wood, it needs to render so you can actually see it like it would be configured in your living room. And that is also a main driver. We have a lot of furniture customers and they have been spearheading this. If you look at like Ethan Allen, I think they worked with augmented reality for five years now, and they were really, really ahead of the pack. Now, I would say most of the furniture customers that we have are in some way, shape or form, doing 3D NAR and AR virtual photography.
0: Yeah. Ikea also has a pretty great app when it comes to incorporating that type of experience too.
1: Yes. Yes. Being Swedes, they like efficiency. So they actually developed their own re- rendering engine back in the day together wow. with the University of Lund in Sweden. So most of the images that we have seen on Ikea catalogs and Ikea websites have been virtually put together for a great many years. Because of the fact that it's expensive and it takes a lot of time to build these environments. You've got to put the kitchen up there, right? And in some cases, you want people in the room. In some cases, you don't. In some cases, you sell green kitchens. And in other cases, you only sell brown ones. So you can't build all of those configurable products together and take photos of them. You just can't. It's not possible if you have... Like, I think Ethan Allen had 3 billion permutations of a sectional sofa. You can't take 3 billion pictures. There's no way you can. So you need to be able to do it dynamically. And that's where this technology comes into play.
0: Certainly would be Cloudinary's favorite customer if you had 3 billion images, for sure. We would love to help with that.
1: Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That would be Indrava's favorite, too. Still, one <laughs> a of my favorite customers, though, but. Uh, yeah. The fact is that there's a need to configure materials even in the consumer-grade sector sometimes. And you can see that now you're sneakers, configurable sofas, everything's configurable today. Consumers want choice. That's why this complexity grows. But with this complexity, of course, comes solutions such as our joint solution to help out and see that that process becomes effective.
0: It is interesting. It kind of touches on the next question a little bit. So just in, in terms of Brands, they have their e-commerce store. That's their main channel to their end customers. And they have other marketplaces that they're going through. But I'm curious to hear about what channels that you're hearing or seeing that are growing in popularity or importance for brands out there. How does that relate to some of the strategies or approaches that they're taking? There's a lot, a lot of angles that they can be looking at, but I'm curious to hear like what you're seeing and what are they doing to capture the attention of consumers across some of these different channels that they could be using. I've
1: written quite a few blog posts about this topic. And one of the things that unfortunately is happening for brands is that the transparency of the internet, the search engines, and the marketplaces actually ends up with a consumer that is less focused on brand and more focused on searching for product properties. Even strong brands will have a hard time capturing their audience as they start their buying journey with a search. And they're not searching for campers, baby wipes. They're searching for baby wipes. And thus, the no-brand baby wipes can actually pop up early in the search result, too. Mm-hmm. So brands need to focus more on the content than ever before, because that's the only thing that they can use as a competitive advantage online. And when you have great content, you're likely to be very visible on the marketplaces, on Google, and of course, not in retailer sites and so forth. Being on page three of Amazon is not a good place to be. It's not a good place to be at page three of Home Depot either if you sell do-it-yourself goods. So you got to have that visibility regardless of how strong your brand is. So I think brand is still important. Brand's always going to be important. We just discussed brands and watches before we started recording, right? But it's different to be Rolex than to be a brand selling do-it-yourself equipment. There's a different affinity to the brand. From my perspective, as brand value is diminishing, brands need to focus more on their content, and they do. They actually do. And we have built-in digital shelf analytics that can help brands stay on top. So they know that they can have the visibility on those third-party sites that they can't control, but where they can control the content. Because the content is what differs from the ones that are on page one and page three. And the ones that get the sale, the ones that have the conversion rate are the ones with the best content that convinces the buyer to buy. So all about content again.
0: Yeah. So discoverability is one thing. So making sure that you're top in the rankings, but then yeah, once you get in there, it has to be fast, it has to be dynamic, it has to be engaging, as customized as possible. Um, Yeah, certainly a lot of factors there.
1: Yeah, for sure. And for the brands, this is really important. And I think most of the brands are starting to realize the importance of the content itself, because again, it is the only thing that you actually sell online is your content. You're in the content business when you go online. That's just it.
0: Yeah. It's so important. And it's such a huge element of not only of the weight of the page, but also the experience of the end user. So great. great points. So, Johan, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. And to the audience, please smash that like button and subscribe to get the latest episodes of MX Matters and to stay up to date with all things uh, media experience. So thanks again. Thank you, Gary. Thanks, Johan.